Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. When Francis Baldwin, uh, one of the true leaders in organization development in my general field of all things organization and all things human, concluded this conversation, she said, we're still here, still doing the work. And Francis and I are contemporaries, so we have lived a long while. And when we say we're still here, it's a blessing. And I think you're going to hear why she and I, who essentially meeting via Zoom for the first times, uh, are likely to be wanting to continue to do the work of helping people adjust to grow in organizational life as teachers, as consultants, and now in my case as writers, and, and in her case as well. However we can get people's attention, we think we have something to offer. You're going to hear what it is. It's, it's, I'd like to tell you it's 17 principles and five uh, different things that coincide in models and have high correlation coefficients. Uh, a lot of good scholars who offer that information to the world. What, what do we have to offer? We, we really like people a lot. And we like to be liked. And we earn it. And that's what you're going to be hearing. Uh, two uh, very likable people who like each other, and hopefully you'll like us both. Francis Baldwin. Okay. Well, you know, I, I get to... I get not only to play doing this podcast series, which now is moving to the 173rd episode with Francis Baldwin. But the play part is that I get to look forward some now for almost two months before Francis and I could make this happen. Uh, it, it's sort of like I felt when I knew on Wednesday that on Saturday there was going to be a double feature at the Cinema Theater in Portland, Maine, with one of my favorite actors. And I could not wait to Saturday. Well, Francis Baldwin, who has a small firm called Designed Wisdom, this is Saturday for me. So thank you for being here. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I look forward to it. And thanks for that introduction i'm going to i'm not going to try to live up to that i'm just going to be myself <laughs> <laughs> well that was a, a double feature with cartoons <laughs> and five cents for candy which i can absolutely <laughs> don't forget the candy <laughs> right. but i think that one one thing uh francis that keeps bringing me back to those uh high moments like i felt and i was telling you a few before we started recording is that we are shaping some pretty significant values back then by the time we're seven or eight uh, without really knowing that's what we're doing. But we're making, choosing this over that. You know, my brother was an athlete, so he was all sports. I was not an athlete, but I was all imagination. And here I am many, many decades later, 
And I think of how thrilling it is to be back on radio, which is what this this yeah. podcast is. Not that I was ever on it, but my ears are always on it. We talked yeah. about that. And we talked about the thrill of, of going to the movies. Uh, and, and, and to the point of wisdom, I think that uh, I'm guessing that the seeds of what we've talked about is authenticity and wisdom uh, are sown very early. And if they're well sown in good soil, like parents and a loving community to live in and church, uh, we, we can make it through a lot. And both of us have. So what are your thoughts about your earliest days? I am so glad that you asked because your statement just stimulated thoughts about that. So um, the important thing is growing up as a little black girl in Florida in Dade County schools where my textbooks were always secondhanded and all of these spaces where you write your name had been filled and scratched out. I never wrote my name in a new book. <clears throat> And that just symbolizes what it was like. Mm. Uh, I had the most incredible teachers. Mm. They were like parents. But related to what you were talking about, um, so my first role model was my brother, who was very smart. He was like in the honor society. Uh, he was an athlete. He played tennis, so I played tennis. I couldn't play football, but I could go write the plays for the guys that allowed me to be there. <laughs> he was my first, and that gets to be important because he really influenced my life uh, because I realize now he lived outside of his reality. He did not buy into the reality of a little black boy in Miami. His, he imagined himself in other worlds, like living in Paris, which he did for 14 years. Wow. Um, but so the imagination part is my escape from my reality was to dream into the person I wanted to be, the places I wanted to go, the kind of woman I wanted to be. And I had five scenarios that I would just daydream about. I would daydream about having an office in New York City where I'd never been, had no, no idea except having an office in New York City. And when I was uh, working in New York on Sixth Avenue for, Del for Exxon Corporation, it hit me one day. <laughs> I arrived at that place. I had a vision about going to small places in Europe where there'd be cobblestone streets and gas lanterns. Mm -hmm. One night as I'm working in a small, uh, my host takes me to a small village and the street had been closed off because it was a tourist street, no cars. We'll walk into the restaurant and I have this overwhelming sense of deja vu. The streets are cobblestone, the gas lamps are on the side of the road. And I couldn't tell anyone what I was experiencing. And that night, just to keep this short, that night just became a very strange, fulfilling night. But every one of those scenarios that I had, Dave, came true. All five? All five. Wow. All, well, four. The one that didn't come true 
was being happily married to a strong man who would allow me to be all I wanted to be, embrace me, and we'd have uh, a house with children and live happily ever after. That part didn't come true. I tried it twice. <laughs> I couldn't do that. <laughs> but but, it, uh. but it, it, as an adult, it reassured my sense of the, the, the importance of imagination, Absolutely. the importance of envisioning yourself beyond who you are and what projection there may be on your on your life. And I didn't make it happen all by myself. Yeah, that's I made the, it that's I made the, it the part it, of yeah, like whoa. <laughs> yeah. It made it happen for the same reason that we started out this discussion. I asked you what you saw in me because I was willing to do the work, but there was always someone who saw something in me and tapped me on the shoulder that it led to each one of those um, stories that came true. That's a wonderful story. And, and I'm thinking if you had been rather typical of, of our time back then, you would have chosen the one strong man story and uh, there, you wouldn't have had the other four. It would just be, I'm just going to find a, a, a strong man and we're going to have a house. We're going to be, because that's what our generation, women in our generation, uh, you know, the, the, the saying back then is a woman doesn't really need to go to college unless she wants to find a successful man to marry. And that was my, gen you know, my wife, Connie, and my generation, she uh, was sort of an exception. And by quick coincidence, I was glancing at my uh, the magazine that my college, Colby College, sends out. It just picked it up in the mailbox before this call. And it says, celebrating 150 years of women at Colby. Oh, wow. There's one of the at very home? Colby College. At Colby College. Yeah. Women at Colby. So, it's one of the reasons why that school was and still is very unique is that women just weren't going to college. Many of those early women, if you look, I'm going to read it carefully, but they became the, the powerhouse teachers, the, you know, the most influential people in, in developing hospitals and so forth, because they were admitted to a liberal arts college when women, this is 150 years ago, women were birthing babies <laughs> and dying doing right. it. Right. right, yeah. So, uh, so I, I don't want to capitalize too much on that one man and the others not there. But uh, thank goodness that you had that scope of imagination oh. and aspiration. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I would just reconnect real quickly to the tap on the shoulder. Someone asked me, uh, on my retirement uh, fet, I guess you'd call it. It was, it was a nice event. And uh, they said, well, uh, could, you, could, tell, could you tell us uh, how you achieved, how you arrived here? Of course, I had to tell them about my time at U University of Connecticut with Peter Vale. But I said, everything, including my time with Peter Vale, came from a tap on the shoulder. I don't remember applying for anything other than original for college. I just don't. And, and I feel so badly for the kids today 
maybe it's coming back that a tap on the shoulder will get him a job, but back then it did. And, uh, and, and it was always exactly when I needed it. You know, when you're at that little bit of edge of desperation. Well, you know, if I think about it, um, so many people had a mentoring mentality. Even my teachers had a mentoring mentality. That's what's missing, babe. These people, not enough young people, evolving professionals, have mentors Mm -hmm. who are helping them. So, um, the extreme of so I'll give you two examples of the tap on the shoulder. Uh, three. One is when I was counseling in the high schools, uh, the counselor from the junior college would come to visit because uh, he was teaching the high school counselors. So he tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, When you're out during the summer, why don't you come work at the junior college to replace the counselors who are on vacation? And I never left. So that got me out of the public schools into junior college, which led to some projects that eventually led to NTL and training. Mm-hmm. EDC Shore, when I was at UMass uh, in graduate school, came to do a project, she and Herb Shepard, a project at university. And she said, you should come join NTL. We are trying to get more women. We are trying to get more blacks into NTL. She said, I'm just going to put you in. You don't have to apply. You're in. There you go. And Herb <laughs> Shepard one night, um, you may have heard me tell this story, Mm-mm. having a drink at an OD Network conference. He just said, okay, Baldwin, what, what's next? And I'm trying to tell him how much fun I'm having, what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I, so I said, you know, I need corporate experience. I've worked in all these public. Uh, I need corporate experience. He said, OK. A month later, I got a package from the corporate H or corporate vice president for HR in Exxon saying these are the places in the world where we have openings for OD professionals. Will you come talk to us? That was very, very scary for the little girl. I was going to say, and back then uh, it was Exxon, but it was Exxon. It, it was it was a Fortune two company, right? It was, you know, it was, it was like the biggest of the big. And it was it was number one at that time, and to me, it was like talking about going to the other side of heaven. Even though I'd done work, you know, I just couldn't imagine myself there. But I went <laughs> and I stayed thirteen years and left on my own terms. So. Greatest, greatest experience, all because Herb Shepard said, you need to take a look at this woman. You know, know, your point about mentoring is is very true. And and perhaps one of the reasons that I uh, enjoyed my success the most in all the schools I taught, particularly the 30 years at Central Connecticut, was that I did not see advising and teaching as separate. A, it was, if I'm teaching, I'm advising. If I'm teaching, I'm mentoring. Right. Uh, it, it's seamless. And uh, and that came from what I think the spirit of mentoring is, and it has to be natural. It's, I, it cannot be forced. It could, it could be trained, but not, not necessarily something that would rise to a practice level. And, the, and it is that... For, you had you you mentioned a gift. My gift was, I just naturally 
care about people. And I know I'm hearing myself saying that, oh, Dave, aren't you something? Yeah, I am. It, yeah, it, I do. It, it, it's sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> you know, I'm easily bamboozled because I, I trust and tell. And I don't sometimes bother to verify. But that's why my wife, mm -hmm. Connie, is such a good partner because she's she says, oh, I don't think well, you know, I, I hear that in your admiration of Peter um, ah. from the early years, but even as you started this project. Um, and what I liked about the early tapes is how he validated you and what you were bringing to the project as much as you were admiring him. And that definition of practice um that you gave what was the source of that uh so it, it was uh, it was called the uh you it's 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 the conscious choice the conscious choice to pursue uh right results uh with uh fairly consistently he always right. was very fair about that right during in, in the in the course of changing circumstances as your white water and uh, wherever your practice uh, takes you, in that context, that's where you learn and grow. That was his idea. And so once he cast that way of thinking, which he was absolutely rock solid about, then he could start conjecturing on other aspects of practice. But he had to be able to tell us what it is. And the other thing is he was adamant. In early, early in those podcasts and in the book, he talks about the big P. And this is, goes to what we've said so far, Francis. What was the big P? He wanted to practice to have a capital P. He said, because it's at some point in life, almost everyone is going to have a practice. Absolutely. And he also had as much, uh, I think, real love in the best sense of it, agape love, for the women who would come into his apartment and assisted living and care for his wounds and do all this stuff, you know, which very humiliating would be to most guys. And no, and why, and, and he was just, he would tell me stories about how one of them was going to be a website designers and, you know, <laughs> another one had tears when she came in to tell him that she was, you know, moving on from the facility and, so, yeah, if you heard that, Peter uh, giving me the gift of his unconditional acceptance, uh, then uh, it was there for sure. Otherwise, that would not have happened. This whole thing, 175 episodes uh, on practice as a way of being Peter's book with my um, uh, narrative or in you know setups i guess you'd call it it never would have happened right. and in his way and i said it in when i wrote the pre uh, my remarks in the preface of the book peter would get very grumbly with me from time to time sometimes off <laughs> by phone when we we're trying to get the book uh, this manuscript of his you know moved moved along and and sometimes on camera where he would say dave come on dave you're not my student. I'm not your teacher. <laughs> you're still treating me like you know, like I'm your superior, and uh, you're my subordinate. And and he said, I don't want you to do that. And I would say, but Peter, you you don't know. You are. You know. You you have you have the superiority here. Uh, yeah. 
and uh, and and what was that? I, I I had to realize in a very humbling, self-humbling way, when I started working to see how I could uh, enhance that manuscript without changing much of anything that Peter wrote. And it was it was that when I would read a paragraph or two of one of his conjectures, Francis, I'd stop and go, oh. I, I want to read that. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. How does that come out of a human mind? I know. It, it was so variegated. It was like he could quote uh, Chester Barnard on the one hand, and uh, from memory, I was on page six, paragraph two. And on the other hand, he would use this little sort of easy uh, touch to uh, his days as a sailor, as a kid, and how much he loved uh, competitive sail, yeah. sailboating. And none of it, it was all natural and easy, but my mind was not that mind. So, so when I put, we put them together, okay, I think we've got quite a deal. <laughs> well, you know, there are two qualities there. Um, one is that uh, I enjoy people, so that love of people. But there's a... Um, there's a process in the middle of that, that in Gestalt we call contact. Mm. So when you and I met, you saw me before I saw you. Then the first time we had a conversation, we made contact. We recognized that our connection was beyond, if I'm putting my hands up, it was beyond these two people being side by side. There's something in us that really came together and we were separate, but they were, we were just openly available to each other on the same, in the same realm. So for us, it was friendship. It was family. It's what it was like to be retired, you know, with quotes, uh, all of with these quotes. things, with all these similarities, yeah. resonated with us so what we made was what we call contact which is beyond connection etc and that was one of the things that i i noticed between um that perhaps ha happened between you and peter years before you you know you, you got even to this thing so those two things i just wanted to um to, to point out it was a lot about that contact and a lot about liking people and i would just echo something that you said not to get us off to a fault because one of my problems is i don't know students you know i don't differentiate myself that much from the students i never differentiated myself that much from my secretaries as a matter of fact, back in the day when you had secretaries, yeah, I remember those days. The two big companies I worked for, Palo Alto and Exxon, both of my secretaries are in touch with me all the time. One from night the eighties, and the other one from the seventies, because I knew we. I just became close to everyone. I just you know like people, and you know what. What you get from that is they would do anything for me. They were my work was going to get done. That's where you and you get a few taps on the shoulder too. Right? Yeah, I mean, and, and you if you tried to contrive a way to get close to people, it it, it would fail miserably. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it puts me in two larger uh, sets of the context of your experience, Francis, and, and our shared experience. One, you mentioned uh, National Training Labs, NTL, and how you had an early experience there. They're celebrating their, their 75th Jubilee. So it was, it, it was definitely uh, quite an institution. It was one of the very first places, I think, where the organizational behavior, development, uh, kind of uh, stew <laughs> was 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 cooking, uh, and and Peter Vale and you and several other folks uh, were were there in that time. And what was to me the genius of the sensitivity training was sensitivity. Right, that was it. Absolutely. You know, the notion that sensitivity, and we men, they men. You know, that was a rough one. You know, the corporate people who would come in there for their for their week or two at NTL, they had uh, to shed an awful lot of uh, scales of culture to, to get real, didn't they? What were some of your memories of, of how people came and, oh and how God. they were transformed? Because I think well, they were. I, I will tell you a bigger story than my memory. I'll give some examples of my memory. But this is full circle with uh, being tapped on the shoulder by um, Herb Shepard, is that Herb Shepard worked at Esso Standard Oil, which became Exxon, in the early days. You know, he was in uh, industrial psychology, mm -hmm. and he and Dave Kolb and um, um, I'll think of the names of the ones, some of these early people Esso brought in because they were having trouble with the, you know, the unions and stuff. So they, as that. industrial psychologists, so and I have an unpublished, unofficial history of um, uh, OD, the origin of OD and Exxon, the roots of OD oh, coming boy. in Esso. You got to get it, that published. That that would be something I read. Couple, it, it's it's really something I needed to give it to um, to NTL for the jubilee because the person who wrote it was very very active in NTL and he was um, an oldie goldie in Exxon. So the story is that um, once Shepard and uh, some Blake Mouton, those guys, once they started looking at the interpersonal, the personal part of what makes organizations work, et cetera, and then started doing the T groups, testing out the T groups. They tested out the first T groups in one of the refineries where I worked. <laughs> you cannot get any closer to the origin of something and than, than and, that. And, and, here's and, what and of all places, an oil so <laughs> across Exxon Corporation, they sent 800 managers and supervisors to NTLT groups. Wow. The concentration of them was in the refineries department. Mm -hmm. To this day, the culture in the refining department is different from the culture in production, exploration, or chemical. It's different. That created a culture there of, of just, you know, prop, a lot around process. They're very conscious around that process, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So consequently, um, but anyway, that's where it, a lot of it started. It was the refineries. So when I went in, um, I got I latched on to the refining department. And I can tell you stories how that saved me. But my biggest project was a construction project at a refinery. It cost millions of dollars. 
And the project manager requested me to come in while the new plant was still on a table in their model. Mm -hmm. And I worked with them until they started running product through the uh, through the tanks. And that project manager wrote a letter to the HR manager and said, because of the work that Francis did with us, we finished this project ahead of schedule, under budget, and had fewer lost time injuries than we've ever had in a large capital improvement construction project. Um, that was still in refining. And that guy who hired me was from that old school of the people who, you know, remember the NTL stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. I told that story in my interview for the NTL yeah. um, uh, thing about the, you know, the number of people and how, um, and the whole thing about uh, um, Herb Shepard. Because it was all about NTL, you know, that was full circle, everything. Uh, that that has so many help. We could run this thing for another three hours, and I, I know I, I, I would no, no. I'm I'm not rushing it because I would yeah. be my I would be mining that story uh, <laughs> for sure. But uh, there there is something in that uh, about the um, the importance of individuals who we could name. Now, there's probably thousands of people at Esson back then and all of that. But when you get to the origin of things, you usually find David Kolb and uh, Herb Shepard. And there are names, Peter Vale, David Bradford's dad, David Bradford and his dad, right. Edith Seashore. People with names, young, names. young, and probably like you, when you mention your agenda, your dream, uh, the spectrum dreaming of great possibilities, but not necessarily assured that they were going to become as famous as they did later on. Absolutely. How did they achieve that? With good works. They achieved it by looking for good people like you and tapping them and developing them. They achieved almost everything that I can think of all the way to the time when they get their awards and their plaques because they were decent human beings who were good to others and had ideas and, and got those ideas out there. And they wanted to freely share those ideas. That's what I remember on NTL. You know, someone has come up with a concept or a conjecture, as you talk about, they write about it, they write a paper and they give it to you, you know. Um, they write up these concepts that they, um, these methods, and they publish it, you know, in these handbooks, they give it away, you know. Um, but the other thing is they were so invested in developing people. I remember Dick Beckhart, he just, it's like he wanted to tell me everything that he knew. He wanted me to know it. He wanted me to understand. So what I tell people, I said, so from people like him, you learn the things you can't learn in textbooks or in a classroom. And the thing that I have emulated that I I don't know what was intentional, is telling stories. Like I met with a young man the other day and um, we were meeting for the first time and he wanted to know how he can get into OD and blah, blah, And I, you know, working, how much time. So I told him a story. Good. I told him two stories. And he said, those two stories answered all of my questions 
in ways I never imagined. Because the story, when you tell the story, you have to talk about the process by which things happen. And that's what usually get left out. Because mm. we process is now becoming alien to what we, the work that we do. I realized that. As a matter of fact, I was talking with a doctoral student um, the other day. And I said, well, you know, Ed Schein did something. I want to mention this to you also off camera. He's, I said, Ed Shine did something and um, she, you know, her eyes sort of glazed. I said, you, you do know who Ed Shine is, don't you? She said, I don't think so. <laughs> Doctoral student in, in organization <laughs> development doesn't know who Ed Shine is, who, by the way, is going to be um, yes, he's going to be a key. featured at the at the Jubilee on the yes, first night. Yes, <laughs> well deserved. Yes, but you know, I've met him a couple of times, and and uh, and Peter knew him very well. Uh, and how humble! I mean, in in the best sense of humility, it's a beautiful humility. You have these ideas, and they crack, and and people are like writing down your every word, and you're just giving it away. And of course, Ed right. wanted to make a living and and did, but you probably know him a whole hell of a lot better than I do. But my impression of him is that there, that he also uh, enjoys contact. Is that is that somewhat true? Oh, enjoys what? Contact. Yes, I think he enjoys that. I didn't know him that well. I've seen him on occasions, but I learned more about him from an article called um, Humility, Ignorance, Humility and ignorance, something for the OD consultant. But Ed Shine, Otto Schammer, and Adam Kahane mm -hmm. in an interview for the, you remember Reflection Magazine used to come out of? Yeah, Peter, they, Peter edited that for a while. Yes. In that article, I learned so much more about, um, they were trying to talk about what is it, that help people to do, some people do much better work than other people. And they came up with this will for betterment, like people who bring a will to make things better would do better in this work than the person who thinks that OD is a jazzy uh, career, you know, get to travel with them. But it's people who bring a will for betterment to everything that they do. I'll never forget that. That's in fact that it, that was the others. The, I mentioned two things. One, your NTL, NTL experience. The other was the work, as we call it, Big W. Uh, the work uh, of essentially, you know, we talked about this one of the times. I think even in the webinars, and you talked to the doctoral students about it. Why would a company want you to come in from the in quotes outside? and get right into the laundry room where the dirty laundry is stacked up in baskets. You know, how could anyone uh, deserve that kind of trust? Uh, and, and yet a lot, of, a lot of OD practitioners do get invited into uh, the, where the most difficult messes as, uh, as, right. as many Absolutely. people refer to. And, and I think it's for the same thing you and I are talking about, Francis. I, I, it's not necessarily technique. It may be because they had an article or two that preceded them that showed people that they 
had a certain amount of intellectual rigor, but they they wouldn't get to stay five minutes in some of the companies like you worked in. Oh, oh if, if absolutely. They, if it was all about some fancy Listen, model, model they wrote. If you I, think Exxon was easy. No. <laughs> well, first of all, they only hired bright people. They hired the best people off the campus. That's yeah. who they hired. I was unusual because I didn't grow up in the organization. Even the OD people grew up in the organization, either as engineers or marketing or something. I was an, I was an, I was an outsider. But one of the senior managers told me why one day. He said, you know what I like about you, Francis? He said, every time I work with you or talk with you, I learn something I didn't already know. So he was reminding me not to get caught up in HR's rigor around how things should get done. Because, you know, unfortunately, most of us internal OD people were reporting through HR, which was that story I told you about with the great measurable results. Mm-hmm. My H, the refinery manager, headquarters manager, had to argue and insist that I go work on that project. The HR manager said I didn't have time. He didn't want to give, it was too much time. Uh, but this, so this senior manager was telling me, he said, don't let HR, you know, take you through all that stuff about so, so much protocol. I said, oh yeah. I said, believe it or not, for this appointment, my HR manager escorted me up the elevator and taught me how to come through security to see you. He just laughed. He said, that's what I'm talking about. He said, don't worry about all that. So you're in HR, you got to, but when I call you, I want to pick your brain. And what I realized, Dave, is that they've spent their years studying engineering and science and all these things. We spent the same amount of time studying human behavior, organization behavior, you know, how you discern conflict, all these things that they haven't spent time paying attention to. And that's what you bring, that's what you overlay on whatever situation they have. And he said, I don't have that. So, I, and, and I want that. Humble enough to admit it. I, I, oh yeah, it's funny. I I noticed. Uh, I get these uh, trend updates. Here I am still studying business trends six years after I stopped being in a business school, and why? Because I'm fascinated with trends. Particularly, right. it has to do with human behavior. So, what was the piece? It it said, uh, "What are what are uh, top executives most worried about? What's the biggest problem on their mind?" You know how we always were told. You know, find the pain, and that's where you're going to have opportunity. Well, guess what? It was attracting and retaining people. Absolutely. It wasn't, uh, you know, all this other stuff in the midst of all this crazy economy and the recession, the war, and you name it, and disenfranchisement of half the the people in the country. You know, by the by the courts, Absolutely. all that was going on. But what at least this one little study found out was, how am I going to attract like to your point of Exxon the best people I can get and keep them and in keep the them. A, in the age of the great resignation Absolutely. you know and and so I my thought was boy if there was ever a, a, a market opportunity for organization developers 
Right. Uh, this is it, man. This is it the time. Really is. And I and I kind of felt that way about the book on practice. And I'm not doing it to be a shameless plugger here, but I will say that as I've gone through every word of that book, I don't know how many times, to get it ready, uh, I kept thinking, practice. Peter's point, the big P. How do you get to find the best people? Make sure that you provide a context in which they can succeed and thrive. Point A, how do you keep them? Make sure that they are succeeding and thriving and getting moved into other opportunities like you got to work on that on that refinery. Right. Don't stop their progress because it's a rule. Yeah, it's <laughs> so pra right. practice is like a, 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 a human bloomer, a, a human, right. a human blooming, right. blooming. And right. uh, for gardeners, they know just what it means, you know, if they're still in the bud, but it's, you know, you cannot keep holding those leaves tight until yeah. you're ready for the rose. <laughs> yeah. Because we have a new a little rose my kids gave uh, Connie for her uh, Mother's Day. And, and she looked out one day and she said, oh, no, it's going to bloom too, too soon. And it's one little rose. And I said, why too soon? Well, you know, it's kind of cold out and everything, and it won't, it won't do very well. Said, Connie, you cannot stand out there and clutch those <laughs> leaves together until it's – and the same thing with, with practice. It's the same thing. You, you, you're blooming when you're doing well in your practice, as you have done for so many years, and I've done. Yeah. And, boy, you want to see – and this is past where you and I really do get along a lot without even knowing it. You you think of some time when when you were told no without explanation, without concern for your feelings. It just no, you cannot, you know, and you having started out in those Miami schools, you you heard that all the time. And so did right. your brother. Right. If someone would tell me no, David, you, you you can't keep teaching the way you're teaching with all my crazy, wonderful bells and whistles. You can't do that. You've got to lecture. You've got to use chalk. And, and you've, got to, you've got to account for every bit of the student's learning. In a, right. uh, I would I, I say, well, good luck. I hope you find someone to replace me. I'm out of right. here. Right. So as, is that you as well? <laughs> <laughs> and so this thing about being told no, that early experience of that, I remember, was, um, oh, I was must have been 12 or 13 years old. I remember the night that I walked through that, across that threshold. I don't know what had happened at school that day, except one of the girls at school, one of my friends at school had gotten pregnant in junior high school mm. and had to drop out of school. But the boy who got her pregnant was still in school. And I had this young junior high school. We lost a lot of girls, mm. you know, and no sex education, et cetera. But I just noticed that. I noticed the racism. I noticed the, the way our community was separated. I lived in Coconut Grove. But when people read about Coconut Grove, they were reading about the um, you know, the glitzy, rich, I lived across the, you know, track in the other coconut grove. And it just dawned on me how oppressed, and I was just so angry, you know. It's just like I said, oh, hell no. You know, I'm, that is just not going to work here. And I started hacking, Dave, 
I started hacking. And um, in all fairness to the strong man concept, I think my hacking, my hacking to be a better person, everything that I did, uh, got in the way in both those situations. In the first situation, I was just so far ahead, so different from the man that I married. And so I was a teacher, but I was going to be the best wife that God ever created. So, you know, I cooked, I ironed, I did everything. I worked at school. I was growing at school and it was just too much for him. So, and it was the same thing in the second situation. I just, and when I say I hacked, you know, you, you see it, you know, I'm a good spirit, you know, I'm a nice person. I'm just going to do everything the best. And in at least three relationships, I realized it was too much. It, I don't know why it was too much. And I just maybe never, never the right person who could do what both people promised me, you know, you can be all you can be. I'm going to support you until you do it. And then it's, um, I get it. until, until I remember when I stopped hacking, <laughs> I was in Italy and I was looking around, you know, I'm in this hotel and there's marble everywhere. And there's the most beautiful marble in the, in the bathroom. And I'm on the phone with my mom. I said, mom, there's a fireplace in my bathroom and there's a fire in it. <laughs> that's that's the guy who brought my breakfast and set it outside, made the fire in the fireplace. So when I went up there and I decided that they, maybe I can stop hacking. I can enjoy having attained something. I love that story. <laughs> I'm home, man. This is it. <laughs> I'm in a marble bathroom in Italy, and I've got a warm fire after I finish. In the fireplace, in the bathroom, with <laughs> a basket of with coffee and a basket of bread. You know, oh, it's like Lord. so. The my my expression for that that day, I realized I was hacking my way through paradise. You know, you don't have to hack your way through paradise. You can stop hacking now. Yeah, but, well, but that spirit of determination. Yeah, um, and and. and in the risk that goes along with getting better while others aren't and in there close to you, I can tell you, uh, and I, I'm probably have to like make two episodes out of this. It's been so wonderfully long and I love it. But let me just tell you that when we were growing up in Maine, a long way from when you were growing up in, in, in Miami, we were in Portland, Maine. I mean, can't get much further away and still further. be in the country. And yet we're somewhat contemporary in this regard. Uh, it was a, it was a culture which is still somewhat there. It said, "Don't get a big head. If you stick your if you stick your head up, it'll be like a nail. Someone's going to hammer it down." Uh, it was almost a necessary thing to be uh, the kind of jokester that put yourself and others down. There was an awful lot of that. Uh, you know, we'd put on that accent for the tourists, but we would say, well, I don't know. I'm kind of down by heart. You know, and and there a lot of people settled for that, settled into it and for right. it, and were totally comfortable. And uh, I I couldn't do it. 
I, I just couldn't, Sorry. what we used to call rot into a life in Maine. As much as I loved it, I would be happy to have stayed there for the rest of my life if I could have continued to use my mind and teach and grow and do stuff. But it was counterculture. Uh, it's all like the redneck si side of life. Mm -hmm. Counterculture to want to use your mind to be exploring, to actually to write a book, to write article. We were a pointy-headed intellectuals. Amazing. And so I've had to fight that. And in fact, coming to Connecticut the first and then second, now third time that I came, Connecticut was an oasis for people who love to use their minds. I mean, sure, okay. there are a lot, there are a lot of poor people here and all the rest, but there's enough of us who like to excel and expected to do it that we weren't constrained like I was culturally then. And you you hacked your way out of that. I hacked my <laughs> And I got my machete <laughs> and I hacked out of the backwoods of Maine. So here we are. Thank you know, goodness. It, we, we, you know, I don't know, we're, what do they call it? Children from the same mother, but. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's just, you just, it, and you think that your world is so different. Um, and and the way these things manifest themselves are different, but not really. And and perhaps what our mission is is we continue to use this blessing of life uh, that to the extent that we can, you know, use now mainly through Zoom and other ways we can reach an awful lot of people. Then what I what I would like to say, Francis, is that our our mission is to be us, you and me, who we are as we are but open and allowing people access to our, our our compassion and our interest and as long as they're willing to listen a little bit to our stories which we've told about a dozen since we started we'll listen to their stories and and that's not a bad way to finish up our <laughs> i think uh, not because i think you know one of the things that's and you just re reminded me it was always important to me to be myself, you know, and I think um, like what the uh, situation in my marriage relationships, I think just being myself uh, was a double-edged sword. But I think, you know, just that ability to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and uh, I know you just uh, why you're saying that and why you're needing a drink of water is uh when we can do that for others allow them to be themselves uh in even if it lasts a moment or a month or as for peter and me nearly 60 years from the time i was his student he always allowed me to be myself i, I was asked and i wrote about it in the introduction to the book why uh why would Peter choose you, David, to help him out with this manuscript while he was in hospice? You know, so it was his last right. effort. Why would he choose you? Right? And I, and I, because I had said to his daughter when she called, look, there's dozens of people who Peter had taught in their doctoral programs who are publishing all over the place, who have all these contacts, and he wants me? And uh, she said, yep. Yeah. So when I connected with Peter by phone, few days later, this is November of 2018, one of the very first things I asked him after how I was so sorry that he was 
in, in hospice because the pain he was suffering for all those years, even though it was parallel, it was just too much for me. He finally said, I, I can't do it anymore. And so I said, well, why, why, why do you think I could do this? And he said, you get it. And I said, get what? He said, what my, my manuscript is about practice, and you get it. And how did you remember that? I've, we were in touch a few times over 50 years. But he reached out from a hospice to find me in Connecticut. And so I felt like, honestly, it was a calling. Well, you know, I think that's a conversation that you and I could have because after I initial conversation and you exchange emails and you closed one of them, something I had said in my email, you responded to it. And you close yours by saying, Francis, I think we both get it. <laughs> and, 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 and I think there is something there. So it's like, um, you know, my relationship with Carol, mm -hmm. for her to say to you, you should notice her, is because she's saying she gets it. You know, she's one of those people that gets it. And I think that's... Um, that's really important. I think it went from Peter to you to me, and I think we spread that. But there is something that we, it's like, you know, finding your right chocolate. You know it when you get it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Going is, through the box until you get that. Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, you really get it. So I just have to tell you, though, that I'm so glad that this podcast was not video because you have made me so animated. I can see myself, you know, throwing my hands and throwing my head back, even when I wasn't talking, while I'm waiting for you to say the last word so I can <laughs> say something, because you are such a stimulating interviewer, <laughs> and you just hit things right on the, on the head. So oh, I, I enjoy that. Thank you. I, I, what, what I do now, Theo, our editor, said, you know, Dave, you should like, have a, a little picture of the person with whom you've had the conversation. So I take it uh, out of the video. I take a little clip, uh, find a very flattering clip, a little one, and I make a, a still picture of it. And I, oh. I put that put that up next to our podcast. And I'll put the one up with us next to each other because that, 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 I like that effect. Because yeah, uh, that's nice. You know, we we uh, we're we're beautiful people. Yes, we are. All right. And we are still here. We're, we're still here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming after for Francis Baldwin 2.0. We've got more to explore here. A Absolutely. lot of history, a lot of the present, and a lot of the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to anactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to anactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and one more thing. How could I forget? 
The book, On Practice as a Way of Being, is available now in digital form, something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us. And it's a, a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www mylibrary, one word, dot world, slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you.